Book Sixth, Part Two of the Excursion by William Wordsworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. True, said the solitary, be it far from us to infringe the laws of charity. Let judgment here in mercy be pronounced. This self respecting nature prompts, and this wisdom enjoins. But if the thing we seek be genuine knowledge, bear we then in mind how from his lofty throne the sun can fling colours as bright on exultations bred by weedy pool or pestilential swamp, as by the rivulet sparkling where it runs, or the pellucid lake. Small risk, said I, of such illusion do we here incur. Temptation here is none to exceed the truth. No evidence appears that they who rest within this ground were covetous of praise, or of remembrance even, deserved or not. Green is the churchyard, beautiful and green, ridge rising gently by the side of ridge, a heaving surface, almost wholly free from interruption of sepulchral stones, and mantled o'er with aboriginal turf and everlasting flowers. These dalesmen trust the lingering gleam of their departed lives to oral record, and the silent heart. Depositories faithful and more kind than fondest epitaph. For if those fail, what boots the sepulchred tomb? And who can blame, who rather would not envy, men that feel this mutual confidence? If from such source the practice flow, if thence, or from a deep and general humility and death? Nor should I much condemn it, if it spring from disregard of time's destructive power, as only capable to prey on things of earth and human nature's mortal part. Yet. In less simple districts, where we see stone lift its forehead emulous of stone in courting notice, and the ground all paved with commendations of departed worth, reading, where'er we turn, of innocent lives of each domestic charity fulfilled, and sufferings meekly borne, I, for my part, though with the silence pleased that here prevails, among those fair recitals also range, soothed by the natural spirit which they breathe, and, in the centre of a world whose soil is rank with all unkindness, compassed round with such memorials, I have sometimes felt it was no momentary happiness to have one enclosure where the voice that speaks in envy or detraction is not heard, which malice may not enter, where the traces of evil inclinations are unknown, where love and pity tenderly unite with resignation and no jarring tone intrudes the peaceful concert to disturb of amenity and gratitude. Thus sanctioned, the pastor said, I willingly confine my narratives to subjects that excite feelings with these accordant—love, esteem, and admiration. Lifting up a veil, a sunbeam introducing among hearts retired and covert, so that ye shall have clear images before your gladdened eyes of nature's unambitious underwood and flowers that prosper in the shade. And when I speak of such among my flock, as swerved or fell, those only shall be singled out upon whose lapse, or error, something more than brotherly forgiveness may attend. To such will we restrict our notice, else better by my tongue were mute. And yet there are, I feel, good reasons why we should not leave wholly untraced a more forbidding way. For strength to persevere and to support, and energy to conquer and repel, these elements of virtue, that declare the native grandeur of the human soul, 
are ofttimes not unprofitably shown in the perverseness of a selfish course, truth every day exemplified, no less in the grey cottage by the murmuring stream than in fantastic conqueror's roving camp, or mid the factious senate, unappalled whoe'er may sink or rise, to sink again as merciless proscription ebbs and flows. There, said the vicar, pointing as he spake, a woman rests in peace, surpassed by few in power of mind, and eloquent discourse. Tall was her stature, her complexion dark and saturnine, her head not raised to hold converse with heaven, nor yet depressed towards earth, but in projection carried, as she walked forever musing. Sunken were her eyes, wrinkled and furrowed with habitual thought was her broad forehead like the brow of one whose visual nerve shrinks from a painful glare of overpowering light. While yet a child, she, mid the humble flowerets of the vale, towered like the imperial thistle, not unfurnished with its appropriate grace, yet rather seeking to be admired than coveted and loved. Even at that age she ruled, a sovereign queen, over her comrades, else their simple sports wanting all relish for her strenuous mind, had crossed her only to be shunned with scorn. O oh, pang of sorrowful regret for those whom, in their youth, sweet study has enthralled, that they have lived for harsher servitude, whether in soul, in body, or estate! Such doom was hers. Yet nothing could subdue her keen desire of knowledge, nor efface those brighter images by books impressed upon her memory, faithfully as stars that occupy their places, and though oft hidden by clouds and oft bedimmed by haze, are not to be extinguished nor impaired. Two passions, both degenerate, for they both began in honour, gradually obtained rule over her, and vexed her daily life. An unremitting avaricious thrift, and a strange thraldom of maternal love, that held her spirit in its own despite, bound, by vexation and regret and scorn, constrained forgiveness, and relenting vows and tears, in pride suppressed, in shame concealed, to a poor dissolute son, her only child. Her wedded days had opened with mishap, whence dire dependence. What could she perform to shake the burthen off? Ah! there was felt indignantly the weakness of her sex. She mused, resolved, adhered to her resolve, the hand grew slack in almsgiving, the heart closed by degrees to charity, heaven's blessing not seeking from that source, she placed her trust in ceaseless pains, and strictest parsimony, which sternly hoarded all that could be spared, from each day's need, out of each day's least gain. Thus all was re-established, and a pile constructed that sufficed for every end, saved the contentment of the builder's mind a mind by nature indisposed to aught so placid, so inactive as content, a mind intolerant of lasting peace, and cherishing the pang her heart deplored, dread life of conflict, which I oft compared to the agitation of a brook that runs down a rocky mountain, buried now and lost in silent pools, now in strong eddies chained, but never to be charmed to gentleness. Its best attainment fits of such repose as timid eyes might shrink from fathoming. A sudden illness seized her in the strength of life's autumnal season. Shall I tell how on her bed of death the matron lay, to providence submissive, so she thought? But fretted, vexed, and wrought upon, 
almost to anger by the malady that griped her prostrate frame with unrelaxing power, as the fierce eagle fastens on the lamb. She prayed, she moaned, her husband's sister watched her dreary pillow, waited on her needs, and yet the very sound of that kind foot was anguish to her ears. And must she rule? This was the death-doomed woman heard to say in bitterness, and must she rule and reign sole mistress of this house when I am gone, tend what I tended, calling it her own? Enough! I fear too much. One vernal evening, while she was in prime of health and strength, I well remember, while I passed her door alone with loitering step, and upward eye turned towards the planet Jupiter that hung above the centre of the veil, a voice roused me, her voice. It said, that glorious star in its untroubled element will shine as now it shines when we are laid in earth and safe from all our sorrows. With a sigh she spake, yet, I believe, not unsustained by faith and glory that shall far transcend aught by these perishable heavens disclosed to sight or mind, nor less than care divine is divine mercy. She, who had rebelled, was into meekness softened and subdued did after trials not in vain prolonged with resignation sink into the grave and her uncharitable acts i trust and harsh unkindnesses are all forgiven though in this veil remembered with deep awe the vicar paused and toward a seat advanced a long stone seat fixed in the churchyard wall part shaded by cool sycamore and part offering a sunny resting place to them who seek the house of worship while the bells yet ring with all their voices, or before the last hath ceased its solitary knoll. Beneath the shade we all sate down, and there, his office uninvited, he resumed. As on a sunny bank a tender lamb lurks in safe shelter from the winds of March, screened by its parent, so that little mound lies guarded by its neighbor, the small heap speaks for itself, an infant there doth rest. The sheltering hillock is the mother's grave. If mild discourse and manners that conferred a natural dignity on humblest rank, if gladsome spirits and benignant looks that for a face not beautiful did more than beauty for the fairest face can do, and if religious tenderness of heart, grieving for sin, and penitential tears shed when the clouds had gathered and disdained the spotless ether of a maiden life. If these may make a hallowed spot of earth more holy to the sight of God or man, then, or that mould, a sanctity shall brood till the stars sicken at the day of doom. Ah! what a warning for a thoughtless man, could field or grove, could any spot of earth, show to his eye an image of the pangs which it hath witnessed, render back an echo of the sad steps by which it hath been trod. There, by her innocent baby's precious grave, and on the very turf that roofs her own, the mother oft was seen to stand, or kneel in the broad day, a weeping Magdalene. Now she is not. The swelling turf reports of the fresh shower, but of poor Ellen's tears is silent. Nor is any vestige left of the path worn by mournful tread of her, who, at her heart's light bidding, once had moved in virgin fearlessness, with step that seemed caught from the pressure of elastic turf upon the mountains gemmed with morning dew, in the prime hour of sweetest scents and airs. Serious and thoughtful was her mind, and yet, by reconcilement exquisite and rare, the form, port, motions of this cottage girl 
were such as might have quickened and inspired a Titian's hand, addressed to picture forth Oread or Dryad, glancing through the shade, what time the hunter's earliest horn is heard startling the golden hills. A widespread elm stands in our valley, named the Joyful Tree. From dateless usage, which our peasants hold of giving welcome to the first of May by dances round its trunk. And if the sky permit, like honours, dance and song are paid to the twelfth night, beneath the frosty stars or the clear moon. The queen of these gay sports, if not in beauty, yet in sprightly air, was hapless Ellen. No one touched the ground so deftly, and the nicest maiden's locks less gracefully were braided. But this praise, methinks, would better suit another place. She loved, and fondly deemed herself beloved. The road is dim, the current unperceived, the weakness painful and most pitiful, by which a virtuous woman in pure youth may be delivered to distress and shame. Such fate was hers. The last time Ellen danced among her equals, round the joyful tree, she bore a secret burthen, and full soon was left to tremble for a breaking vow then to bewail a sternly broken vow alone within her widowed mother's house it was the season of unfolding leaves of days advancing toward their utmost length and small birds singing happily to mates happy as they with spirit saddening power winds pipe through fading woods but those blithe notes strike the deserted to the heart i speak of what i know and what we feel within Beside the cottage in which Ellen dwelt stands a tall ash-tree, to whose topmost twig a thrush resorts, and annually chants at morn and evening from that naked perch, while all the undergrove is thick with leaves, a time-beguiling ditty, for delight of his fond partner silent in the nest. "'Ah, why,' said Ellen, sighing to herself, "'why do not words and kiss and solemn pledge?' and nature that is kind in woman's breast, and reason that in man is wise and good, and fear of him who is a righteous judge. Why do not these prevail for human life, to keep two hearts together, that began their springtime with one love, and that have need of mutual pity and forgiveness, sweet to grant or be received? While that poor bird, O oh, come and hear him, thou who hast to me been faithless, hear him, though a lowly creature, one of God's simple children, that yet know not the universal parent, how he sings as if he wished the firmament of heaven should listen, and give back to him the voice of his triumphant constancy and love, the proclamation that he makes, how far his darkness doth transcend our fickle light. Such was the tender passage, not by me repeated without loss of simple phrase, which I perused, even as the words had been committed by forsaken Ellen's hand to the blank margin of a valentine, be dropped with tears. Twill please you to be told that, studiously withdrawing from the eye of all companionship, the sufferer yet in lonely reading found a meek resource. How thankful for the warmth of summer days, when she could slip into the cottage-barn and find a secret oratory there! Or in the garden, under friendly veil of their long twilight, pour upon her book, by the last lingering help of the open sky, until dark night dismissed her to bed. Thus did a waking fancy sometimes lose the unconquerable pang of despised love. A kindlier passion opened on her soul when that poor child was born. 
Upon its face she gazed as on a pure and spotless gift of unexpected promise, where a grief or dread was all that had been thought of. Joy far livelier than bewildered traveller feels, amid a perilous waste that all night long hath harassed him toiling through fearful storm, when he beholds the first pale speck serene of day-spring in the gloomy east, revealed, and greets it with thanksgiving. Till this hour, thus in her mother's hearing, Ellen spake, there was a stony region in my heart. But he, at whose command the parched rock was smitten, and poured forth a quenching stream, hath softened that obduracy, and made unlooked-for gladness in the desert-place, to save the perishing. And henceforth I breathe the air with cheerful spirit, for thy sake, my infant, and for that good mother dear who bore me, and hath prayed for me in vain. Yet not in vain, it shall not be in vain she spake, nor was the assurance unfulfilled. And if heart-renting thoughts would oft return, they stayed not long. The blameless infant grew, the child whom Ellen and her mother loved, they soon were proud of, tended it, and nursed, a soothing comforter, although forlorn, like a poor singing-bird from distant lands, or a choice shrub, which he, who passes by with vacant mind, not seldom may observe fair flowering in a thinly peopled house whose window somewhat sadly it adorns through four months space the infant drew its food from the maternal breast then scruples rose thoughts which the rich are free from came and crossed the fond affection she no more could bear by her offence to lay a twofold weight on a kind parent willing to forget their slender means so to that parent's care Trusting her child, she left their common home, and undertook with dutiful content a foster-mother's office. "'Tis perchance unknown to you that in these simple veils the natural feeling of equality is by domestic service unimpaired. Yet though such service be, with us, removed from sense of degradation, not the less the ungentle mind can easily find means to impose severe restraints and laws unjust which hapless Ellen now was doomed to feel. For, blinded by an over-anxious dread of such excitement and divided thought as with her office would but ill accord, the pair, whose infant she was bound to nurse, forbade her all communion with her own. Week after week the mandate they enforced, so near, yet not allowed upon that sight to fix her eyes, alas, t'was hard to bear but worse affliction must be borne, far worse, for tis heaven's will that, after a disease begun and ended within three days' space, her child should die. As Ellen now exclaimed, her own deserted child, once, only once, she saw it in that mortal malady, and on the burial day could scarcely gain permission to attend its obsequies. She reached the house, last of the funeral train and some one, as she entered, having chanced to urge unthinkingly their prompt departure, nay, she said with commanding look, a spirit of anger never seen in her before, nay, ye must wait my time. And down she sate, and by the unclosed coffin kept her seat, weeping and looking, looking on and weeping, upon the last sweet slumber of her child, until at length her soul was satisfied. You see the infant's grave and to this spot the mother, oft as she was sent abroad on whatsoever errand, 
urged her steps. Hither she came. Here stood, and sometimes knelt in the broad day, a rueful Magdalene. So call her, for not only she bewailed a mother's loss, but mourned in bitterness her own transgression. Penitent, sincere, as ever raised to heaven a streaming eye. At length the parents of the foster-child, noting that, in despite of their commands, she still renewed and could not but renew those visitations, ceased to send her forth or to the garden's narrow bounds confined. I failed not to remind them that they erred, for holy nature might not thus be crossed, thus wronged in woman's breast. In vain I pleaded, but the green stalk of Ellen's life was snapped, and the flower drooped. As every eye could see, it hung its head in mortal languishment. Aided by this appearance I at length prevailed, and from those bonds released she went home to her mother's house. The youth was fled. The rash betrayer could not face the shame or sorrow which his senseless guilt had caused, and little would his presence or proof given of a relenting soul have now availed. For, like a shadow, he was passed away from Ellen's thoughts, had perished to her mind for all concerns of fear, or hope, or love, save only those which to their common shame and to his moral being appertained hope from that quarter would, I know, have brought a heavenly comfort. There she recognized an unrelaxing bond, a mutual need, there and, as it seemed, there only. She had built, her fond maternal heart had built, a nest, in blindness all too near the river's edge. That work a summer flood with hasty swell had swept away, and now her spirit longed for its last flight to heaven's security the bodily frame wasted from day to day. Meanwhile, relinquishing all other cares, her mind she strictly tutored to find peace and pleasure in endurance. Much she thought, and much she read, and brooded feelingly upon her own unworthiness. To me, as to a spiritual comforter and friend, her heart she opened, and no pains were spared to mitigate, as gently as I could, the sting of self-reproach, with healing words. Meek saint, through patience glorified on earth, In whom, as by her lonely hearth she sate, The ghastly face of cold decay put on a sun-like beauty, And appeared divine. May I not mention, that within those walls, In due observance of her pious wish, The congregation joined with me in prayer for her soul's good? Nor was that office vain. Much did she suffer. But, if any friend beholding her condition, at the sight gave way to words of pity or complaint, she stilled them with a prompt reproof, and said, He who afflicts me knows what I can bear, and when I fail, and can endure no more, will mercifully take me to himself. So through the cloud of death her spirit passed into that pure and unknown world of love, where injury cannot come, and here is laid the mortal body by her infant's side. The vicar ceased and downcast looks made known that each had listened with his inmost heart. For me, the emotion scarcely was less strong or less benign than that which I had felt when seated near my venerable friend, under those shady elms, from him I heard the story that retraced the slow decline of Margaret, sinking on the lonely heath with the neglected house to which she clung. I noted that the solitary's cheek confessed the power of nature. Pleased, though sad, more pleased than sad, the gray-haired wanderer sate, 
thanks to his pure imaginative soul, capacious and serene, his blameless life, his knowledge, wisdom, love of truth, and love of humankind. He was it who first broke the pensive silence, saying, Blessed are they whose sorrow rather is to suffer wrong than to do wrong, albeit themselves have erred. This tale gives proof that heaven most gently deals with such in their affliction. Ellen's fate, her tender spirit, and her contrite heart call to my mind dark hints which I have heard of one who died within this vale by doom heavier as his offence was heavier far. Where, sir, I pray you, where are laid the bones of Wilfred Armorthwaite? The vicar answered, In that green nook, close by the churchyard wall, beneath yon hawthorne, planted by myself in memory and for warning, and in sign of sweetness where dire anguish had been known, of reconcilement after deep offence, there doth he rest. No theme his fate supplies for the smooth glozings of the indulgent world, nor need the windings of his devious course be here retraced. Enough that, by mishap and venial error, robbed of competence, and her obsequious shadow, peace of mind, he craved a substitute in troubled joy. Against his conscience, rose in arms, and braving divine displeasure, broke the marriage vow. That which he had been weak enough to do was misery in remembrance. He was stung, stung by his inward thoughts, and by the smiles of wife and children stung to agony, wretched at home, he gained no peace abroad. Ranged through the mountains, slept upon the earth, asked comfort of the open air, and found no quiet in the darkness of the night, no pleasure in the beauty of the day. His flock he slighted, his paternal fields became a clog to him, whose spirit wished to fly. But whither? And this gracious church that wears a look so full of peace and hope and love, benignant mother of the vale, how fair amid her brood of cottages! She was to him a sickness and reproach much to the last remained unknown. But this is sure, that through remorse and grief he died. Though pitied among men, absolved by God, he could not find forgiveness in himself, nor could endure the weight of his own shame. Here rests a mother. But from her I turn and from her grave. Behold, upon that ridge, that stretching boldly from the mountain-side carries into the centre of the vale its rocks and woods. The cottage where she dwelt, and where yet dwells her faithful partner, left, full eight years past, the solitary prop of many helpless children. I begin with words that might be prelude to a tale of sorrow and dejection, but I feel no sadness when I think of what mine eyes see daily in that happy family. Bright garland form they for the pensive brow of their undrooping father's widowhood, those six fair daughters, budding yet, not one not one of all the band a full-blown flower, depressed and desolate of soul, as once that father was, and filled with anxious fear, now, by experience taught, he stands assured that God, who takes away, yet takes not half of what he seems to take, or gives it back, not to our prayer, but far beyond our prayer, he gives it, the boon produce of a soil which our endeavours have refused to till and hope hath never watered. The abode, whose grateful owner can attest these truths, even were the object nearer to our sight, would seem in no distinction to surpass the rudest habitations. 
ye might think that it had sprung self-raised from earth, or grown out of the living rock, to be adorned by nature only. But if thither led, ye would discover, then, a studious work of many fancies, prompting many hands. Brought from the woods the honeysuckle twines round the porch, and seems in that trim place a plant no longer wild. The cultured rose there blossoms, strong in health, and will be soon roof-high. The wild pink crowns the garden wall, and with the flowers are intermingled stones sparry and bright, rough scatterings of the hills. These ornaments, that fade not with the year, a hardy girl continues to provide, who, mounting fearlessly the rocky heights, her father's prompt attendant, does for him all that a boy could do, but with delight more keen and prouder daring. Yet hath she, within the garden, like the rest, a bed for her own flowers and favourite herbs, a space, by sacred charter, holden for her use. These, and whatever else the garden bears of fruit or flower, permission asked or not, I freely gather, and my leisure draws a not unfrequent pastime from the hum of bees round their sacred, sheltered hives busy in that enclosure while the rill that sparkling thrids the rocks attunes his voice to the pure course of human life which there flows on in solitude but when the gloom of night is falling round my steps then most this dwelling charms me i often stop short who could refrain and feed by stealth my sight with prospect of the company within laid open through the blazing window there i see the eldest daughter at her wheel spinning amain as if to overtake the never-halting time, or, in her turn, teaching some novice of the sisterhood that skill in this or other household work, which from her father's honoured hand herself, while she was yet a little one, had learned. Mild man! He is not gay, but they are gay, and the whole house seems filled with gaiety. Thrice happy, then, the mother may be deemed, the wife, from whose consolatory grave I turned, that in ye mind might witness where, and how, her spirit yet survives on earth. End of Book Sixth, Part Two Recording by Bill Borst